0: Some of you may think that what I'm going to speak about now happens to the clergy all the time. And what I'm going to say is that it happens probably more than uh, one would think, but less than you might think. Thursday I was uh, walking up to the parish hall door to open it, and two women came up to me up the stairs... One said, Oh, good, he's the one we can ask. The older woman who said this had her arm around the younger woman, and as I had my key in the door, she said, Go ahead, ask him. And the younger woman said, When is the second coming? So, in my mind, what first occurred to me was a voice that said, Oh, no! <laughs> and then when I pulled myself together, I spoke for about 40 seconds, giving a brief proceed on the second coming. Whereupon they said, that was beautiful, and hustled away so quickly that I couldn't say, would you like to come in and talk to me, or anything like that. They were gone. And I thought afterwards that what, uh, had, what was at issue here was that certainly the younger person had uh, been told some things about the nature of the second coming and what it was, and maybe had the daylight scared out of her about it. I don't know. But I got to thinking it was sort of uh, appropriate because this week we're talking about the second coming, certainly in the reading from 1 Thessalonians. So it affords me the opportunity to say some things to you about how Episcopalians might understand what that means. And then the gospel about the parable of the talents is... um, one that is rich with interpretive possibilities and it also affords the opportunity to remind you of something I've been saying a week after week recently and that is it isn't important what the Bible says. It's important what the Bible means and it is necessary for us to be students of the Bible and the biblical witness and to understand perhaps how the biblical writers understood what later becomes things like the second coming or the parable of the talents and how we understand and interpret that in the first part of the 21st century. So let me begin by saying uh, something to you as a preface to 1 Thessalonians regarding apocalyptic imagery in the Bible and specifically in the New Testament. The people who heard these words read to them for the first time, or read them after they were in written form, understood completely all of the symbolic language that was used in these apocalyptic statements about the second coming. The book of Revelation was no mystery to the audience for whom it was intended, there is no secret in the book of Revelation that is embedded there that has required some modern exponent like Hal Lindsey and the great, late great planet Earth to unpack for us and explain to us. Everybody knew what they were talking about and what all that symbolic language referred to. In other words, they knew the code. So a lot of Christians have been held hostage to a particular kind of apocalyptic understanding of the nature of Christianity that is simply not true. Now one of the things we have to understand is that even the biblical writers themselves go through a process of development and maturity with regard to their own reflection about the deep things of Christian faith and belief. So the Apostle Paul actually goes through a development in his understanding of what the nature of the second coming means. So here's some 3995 biblical scholarship. 1 Thessalonians is the oldest piece of writing in the New Testament. It dates from about 50 to 55 A.D. The Pauline writings, the authentic letters of Paul, all constitute the earliest literature of the New Testament. Paul himself is writing approximately from, let's say, 48 or 50 to about 62 AD when he's martyred on the road between Ostia and Rome. His own understanding of the second coming is given to us today in 1 Thessalonians in its earliest form, which is, to use very fancy language, highly eschatological. He is preaching that the coming of Jesus again is imminent. But even by the time he writes to the Thessalonians, his views that were in his preaching when he was physically present to that congregation have undergone something of a change. And so he is struggling with the pastoral issues that have been raised by many people there about how they are to think about the second coming when it hasn't happened yet. And we are now 25 years out, a generation later. So what do I do about my Aunt Irma who has died before the second coming? So last week was about comfort. This week, he says, it is not for us to know the times or the seasons. Idle speculation about the second coming, as it turns out, is not something that is a fruitful undertaking. And what is the history of Christianity subsequent to this, where we have had so many predictions about the second coming, none of them have proved true. Paul is saying we need to think about what we mean when we talk about the second coming or God's coming or apocalyptic events in a different way. So let me give you one. Paul is living in history in a period known as the Roman peace. The Roman peace has lasted in his lifetime for about 50 years. What does it mean? It means that there's relative peace and security within the whole of the Roman Empire. The ancient Near East where Paul exercised his missionary work was about 25% of the population of the Roman Empire. And so things may be going on the surface smoothly, but a lot of people are worried and nervous Because the wheels could come off this thing any moment. And there are signs that that might be so in various locations within the Roman Empire about about which he is conversant, knows about. 25 years after the writing of 1 Thessalonians, it comes true. The apocalyptic moment... The temple in Jerusalem is destroyed by the Roman government. All of the, the Qumran library out in, uh, out in Qumran where the dead Sea go flatten. The Romans roll over the ancient Near East like a steamroller. Get rid of all of the revolutionary people and put an end to it. Christianity is on its back. People are beginning to wonder what in the world they ought to be doing. And so it goes again. Paul is saying you need to think about his apocalyptic circumstances, not in terms of some cloud cuckoo land from somewhere else arriving here and replacing what we have, but making sense of what we have in light of the message of Jesus Christ, God's unconditional acceptance, love and forgiveness, And what role do you have to play in it? And he gives us a suggestion today, and that is that we need to uphold and to encourage one another. And it is a commercial message for the community of life, the community life and the faith that we call the church. And he said that as you begin to live and understand this, you may need to see that you have a role to play in all of the issues around what we call the second coming. And in an odd sense, as you become a transparency and reflection of God's grace and love, you then become an instrument of the kingdom of God and the coming of Christ. Because whenever we see the highest and best of human behavior and relationship, we see the presence of Christ. And so we begin in 1 Thessalonians to learn and to see some things about how the biblical writers understood this apocalyptic imagery, making sense out of uncertain times. And that is something that seems to be part of the way human beings live. And we believe, and many biblical interpreters believe, that what we're talking about when we talk about the second coming is within human history. And that the values of the kingdom of God come as people come to the realization of their cooperating with the divine initiative begun in them. So when you hear Jesus say the kingdom of God is near you, it doesn't just mean in his presence in his earthly ministry, although that was part of it in his earthly preaching, but right next to you, whenever you see the highest and best of our humanity expressed, when you express it in relationship, when you have become the beneficiary of it from the generosity and care and concern of somebody else. That is part of the second coming, maybe multiple times that God comes into our hearts. In the reading from Matthew's Gospel, the parable of the talents, we have a fairly famous Uh, parable that people have heard before many times it's preached about in many ways so following though on my uh, big hobby horse that I've been riding for the last time in the green season this year we need to read the parables and understand them in at least three ways what did Jesus mean when he spoke it what did the oral tradition who repeated the parables that he spoke to the various communities that began to develop the sayings that Jesus spoke in his earthly ministry, how did they interpret what was said, and finally, what is the meaning of the community out of which the gospel emerged? How did they interpret this? How did Matthew interpret this? Because Matthew now is writing in 85 AD, or 90, and that's two generations out and he still hasn't come. So how are we going to make sense of this? If you were to ask, you got plopped down in a time machine, you went back into the ancient Near East and you were there and you were walking around and you ran into a lot of people who'd seen Jesus and heard Jesus, and you would say, well, who? who is he? What would you say that he is? And one of the descriptions that you would receive from people would be, Jesus is a mashal. He is a teacher of wisdom. So part of the parable that he's preaching is, oddly enough, and you say, is that, is the prudent management of resources. And understanding the custody that you have and the responsibility you have over the riches that are entrusted to you. Now what we will see when he speaks this parable, he has something else in mind besides just material resources. He has spiritual and traditional resources in mind as well. So he categorizes first two people who seem to use the treasure that they have been given Remember Jesus also spoke in code because he didn't want to get arrested too soon. So he's speaking about the people of God, we call the church. And the people and the person with the 5 talents and the person with the 2 talents, by the way, I didn't I looked it up and forgot to write it down. A talent is a huge amount of money it is an incomprehensibly large amount of money. Nobody would have that much money. To get five talents would have been just a huge amount, you know, almost like Lehman Brothers. <laughs> I mean, you could interpret this parable, couldn't you, as say, well, the guy with one talent who gets it in the, gets it in the neck... Uh, sold too soon and was in cash before it all crashed right (laughs) but that's not what Jesus means Jesus is talking about the custody that the people of the covenant have over the great wisdom that they have received from God as people of the covenant and here's how it goes down Jesus says the people with one talent this is code for the the, the religious leadership who have said this message that Jesus is preaching about God's inclusive invitation to invite now all of the people of the world into God's saving embrace, which is not just unique to Jesus, but which Jesus points to the literature of their own covenant, the sacred literature we call the Old Testament, that the great prophets of Israel have in their prophetic announcements, said that God is now working a new thing. Remember Isaiah saying, what I am about to say to you now is going to make the ears of everyone in Israel tingle. That God is announcing through him once again that this saving message God's inclusive love forgiveness and acceptance is for everybody not just for the people of the covenant and those in the religious leadership said nope they've got to hew the line here's how it works we wish it were otherwise but it simply has to be this way and the people with the five and the two talents have said this riches, these riches with which we are entrusted, we are now going to risk by becoming generous and open handed, and the benefits that attach to us are going to be limitless as the result. The community of the oral tradition that began to tell this story said this is about the necessity to practice God's generosity and it is also about within the communities of faith that are having clashes over Gentile and Jew that we need to bring more generosity and cooperation to them. And as we come to Matthew, we now have the situation drawn to a fine point. Matthew is a former rabbi who is the member, a member of a Christian Jewish synagogue that has now become 80 percent Gentile. His fellow Jewish Christians within that community, some of them are saying this 80 percent majority now has got to hew the line. All the men have to be circumcised. You have to keep the law. You have to do all this because Jesus didn't come to get rid of all that. He came to affirm it And they need to do it if they wish to be part of the kingdom. So they've got to get with the program. And Matthew and his constituency say, you know what, the 80% who may be the people with the five talents and the two talents have something to say to us and maybe we need to understand what it really means about God's gracious gift and God's welcome to everyone. And that we have a responsibility now to practice that kind of hospitality as we live. This is both about the church and also about each of us, the generosity with which we express ourselves in the wider world, how we're capable of the gracious gesture, how we're generous with our resources how we become open-handed in our ability to listen to the practical wisdom that can be passed our way by people that before we didn't think had anything to teach us or show us at all. And how can we, through understanding the integrity of our own traditions, share them with people in such a way as to be compelling and life-giving so this week, don't worry a lot about apocalyptic imagery in the literalist sense. Understand that in the developed theology of all this, the biblical writers came to understand that the location for understanding both the second coming and apocalyptic occurrences were within the, human, the context of human history. And therefore, you and I become instruments of God's purposes in the world in every age. See if you're willing to take risks and to practice the generosity that God calls you to. And if there are any things that you're holding on to that are holding you back, let them go. Amen.